This is Colonia Cast, episode 23. You can find us at theturtleroom.org slash coloniacast, where you can learn more about our program and access the Colonia Cast Student Research Fund. Today, we're really excited. We're joined by Dr. Brian Horn, who is the Freshwater and Turtle and Tortoise Coordinator for uh, WCS. Uh, Dr. Horn has done a variety of different uh, conservation work and research in, I believe, six of six continents. Uh, he's done some really interesting things and we're, we're really excited to talk to him today. So thank you for coming on, Dr. Horn. Oh, you're quite welcome. And, and don't worry about the doctor. Just call me Brian. All right. That sounds good. To get going here, um, we ask every guest this, but I mean, there's not really a better question to start this podcast. Um, what first got you interested in turtles and tortoises? Um, you know, I, I was thinking about that last night, and my my short answer was growing up in rural Virginia, and uh, we were driving in my my father's yellow uh, Volkswagen Squareback. It's a little station wagon with an air cooled engine, and we stopped on a country road and picked up a box turtle. And uh, I was I was very supported by my parents, and um, you know, I had snakes and toads and lizards and I had it all, you know, big backyard with box turtles because I could go out into the woods and, and, and find them. And I really enjoyed that. Um, but also one of the memories I, I resurfaced last night was I remember my, my neighbor. Um, he was a construction worker, you know, long, long history in, in the area. And, and he had gone um, trapping for snapping turtles. and. Uh, I had never seen an, a big adult snapping turtle and they were butchering them because they were eating them, going to eat them. And I remember um, there was one big female and she had all these eggs inside her. And I was just like, whoa, what's this anatomy? So I got really interested in anatomy and trying to figure out turtle anatomy and understand how they breathe with, a, you know, you know, with, with, their, with a shell and how, you know, they're not having a diaphragm. So I got really interested in anatomy, but I think overall it was just, um, growing up in a rural part of, of America where I could go out and, and catch painted turtles and um, really spend time in, in nature with them. When you talk about anatomy, we've been uh, spending some time dissecting a lot of turtles <laughs> recently. So with the working with the, the Colonian Research Institute collection out here in Ohio. So it's been pretty interesting, kind of, the, I guess, uh, a similarity there. We've had some time to kind of get to know the inside of a turtle pretty well. Uh, that's pretty interesting. One of the one of the things I know you're one of the uh, on the board or steering committee for the IUCN TFTSG group, uh, and that that's a pretty interesting group. You you work to I mean maybe you can give us a little bit of background on on what you do there or kind of what is the process for and and what is kind of the the the, the purpose of the the group right. Yeah, um, for I've been involved in the group for quite a while. Um, it's it's based out of the, um, the you know the IUC and the International Union for Conservation of Nature, and the goal of of the group is to really work on the red listing accounts. And the red list accounts are uh, a status uh, of you know how they're doing in the wild. How are all the turtle species doing in the wild? And there's there's a really in-depth system of 
categorizing the species. And the idea is that um, on a regular basis, we should be able to go through and catalog the turtles and determine uh, their status if they're critically endangered, endangered, um, vulnerable, near threatened, least concerned, or data deficient. And, um, you know, I served as the as a co-chair for four years a while back. And um, I go to a lot of the workshops, particularly the workshops in, in Asia. And that's when we get together a whole group of experts and we, we talk about the current status of them. And a lot of people are, get a little confused because it's not just about the total number of turtles. That plays a part of it. Um, but it's how they're declining over you know two generations, how much distribution they lost, what's the threat level. Um, and one thing, just a slide aside, one thing that we as a community, turtle conservation community, struggle to do is really come up with um, real population estimates. You know, we often study, uh, I mean, when I say population, I mean total population across the, the species' entire distribution. We, we spend a lot of time just looking at studying one population here, one population there. But as we, as the group more moves forward, and one of the things I think we, we need to do better at, and this is perhaps where, you know, smart, young, dedicated folks like y'all can help come up with a means for using new technologies to better estimate the total populations. Is it with environmental DNA? Is it with, with genetics? Is it with GIS? Um, and how do you extrapolate that? Because, you know, in the public eye, one of the things that we're falling behind with is, you know, is, is count. Talon, I'm on the phone. Shh. Talon, I'm on the phone. Sorry, my kids are home from, home from school and it's a Sunday morning. They're all watching cartoons. Um, oh, it's okay. We're <laughs> working yeah. virtually. That's part of the game. <laughs> so, so, yeah, like if you look at elephants, people will tell you we've got this many elephants. If you look at tigers, people will tell you we don't have this many and how many we increased. And that's those concrete numbers like that really capture the general public. And all too often we spend time about being negative. Oh, these, you know, and we use it way too much. Oh, turtles are the most endangered vertebrate group. No, no, I, I, it, it's the wrong message in my opinion. I think we really need to say is look, comparatively, for the amount of money we spend on these megafaunas, we can save almost all the turtles. We, you know, because it's not as as um, costly type type of of conservation and, and population recovery. Um, I think we need to really change that narrative. And I, I'm sorry, this was a, a bit of a, a stray from the specialist group. And I don't want to take away from what the specialist group does. The specialist group is really about being an unbiased scientific authority for saying what is the status of a species. They're not a conservation um, proactive group. It's not what they do. They're not supposed to be going out and, and doing the, the conservation as the specialist group. Many of the individuals in the specialist group do conservation and it's comprised a lot of, of that, but it's not a lobbying group. It's not an advocating group. It's supposed to be the unbiased scientific authority on what's the status of turtles. Um, but as I see, as I see it, it's an extremely important job and it's one that we're, we're falling behind on. Um, we have many turtles that are still data deficient. We have many turtles that, that haven't had their, their status update in a very long time. And part of that is, um, often because, um, we're all way too busy. 
it's an it's a it's a big task. It's a lot of work, um, and there's some bottlenecks that we need to get through. Um, but if I had any message, is that uh, is that we need to refocus on that because because so many of these statuses are out of date. Sometimes twenty years or more, um, you're losing conservation funds um, that are so needed because uh, unfortunately, and I and I'll, I'd like to talk about this later, is unfortunately so many conservation organizations only prioritize critically endangered and endangered species and and if if you're not having an updated status and really telling the 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 world what the turtles really are then you're losing out on a lot of money and species conservation is so incredibly difficult to fund it's it's species focused dollars are tough to, to come up with and you know it's it, it it's really hard to raise those monies for those type of projects it's much easier to say okay we're going to raise money for intact um forest or we're going to um work on some of the other bigger projects you know human wildlife conflict like um wildlife disease those sorts of things hey i want to study and save this one turtle on this one island and, you know, people are like, well, that's not a big enough impact for my dollars. So we really have to um, do a better job of, of messaging and, and not always focus on the negative and focus more on the positives and what what can be done and how you, we can restore these populations for comparatively little amount of money compared to some of the other megafauna. I'm sorry, that was a little wandering. No, that's pretty interesting. Like, I think that comes down to like basic human nature. If, if it's too negative and you're just presenting everything, so you're overwhelming them with negativity, people are just not going to want to be involved in that. They're going to just want to forget about it and put their money towards something that they feel is worth investing in. Yeah. And people fund people. And, you know, I think that's what's really great about like what kind of what you're doing is, you know, you're putting this interaction with people and when you when you have someone who's enthusiastic and dedicated and uh has that driving passion to make a difference those are those are the individuals that are often most successful in raising funds to do the work because people get excited about your positivity and your drive um and i think that's really important and i, I think you know if, if, if i had a message to to young people is that just you know, it's to, to show people your drive. And I'm not talking about being like Steve Irwin and get out there and, you know, being, you know, an over the top personality. But if you can ex exchange your information and you can tell your point of view, your story in such a way and why this is important to you and how you are impacting not only the turtles, the, the, the environment, the, the human communities, I think you'll have a much better chance of success. Yeah, I think that, like you said, with the megafauna getting a lot of the funding, it is sort of unfortunate. I mean, that's good that that happens, that we're conserving other species, but at the same rate, we were talking to a few weeks ago, Whit Gibbons, we had sort of a discussion about why turtles matter. And there's just this variety of different ways that they're really important. And if there was just some way to make that more clear to the general public, I feel like that there would be a lot more support just to, right up front for, for colonians and 
colonial conservation. But I think it's a good way that you put the you sort of talk about the, the, the specialist group, but also put it into context, right, of why this is important and, and what are sort of the shortcomings and, and, and what are the things that are the reasons behind the status assessments we're, we're looking at there. I think that's an interesting way to sort of describe that. Maybe uh, I, I know that you've sort of done research and, and published some of the, uh, the red list assessments for some species and uh, specifically in, in Asia, uh, maybe you could, was there anything sort of interesting that you found in, in looking through reports on species and, and something that was kind of shocking to you or? Oh. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, you know, I, and this has been on my mind quite a bit lately is that um, within, within Asia, uh, Southeast Asia is primarily where, where I've been working, South, South Asia, and Southeast Asia, where I've spent most of my time the, the past oh, 15 plus years, um, is that when, we, <clears throat> when we've been looking at all the turtles, hunting pressure is by far the number one reason for the decline of all species. And it's intense because I don't think many people in the US who haven't had the chance to travel really understand the human density and how many humans are in that, that those regions, and what pressure they put on on wildlife. Um, some of that has to do with poverty, and the, the need for for protein. Um, some of it has to do with just human greed, look, you know, looking to make a buck. But when you look at at the turtle populations, and we've looked at and so many of the species, you know, you look at some of like the rare cura from Vietnam. You know, those turtles were hit really hard. And that was a lot for the pet trade and some for the food trade, some for the medicinal trade. Um, and those populations shrank quickly and they're very, very low. Um, but you look at like some of like the snail eaters. Um, why is it that you can go into almost every market and find those? You see them for sale on the roadsides. You see them everywhere. And people are like, oh, they're just abundant. It's no problem. But the hunting pressure is extreme. Same with like like sliced semis, the little flap shell turtles. Huge hunting pressures. What is it about those turtles that enables them to sustain these extremely high hunting pressures? And I think there's a couple a couple things. Um, I think they mature very quickly. They grow very fast, and they're very highly fecund. You know, they lay a lot of eggs each year. They probably start laying them at a very young age. Um, so they're very unturtle-like in, in the in the classic, slow, very slow to mature, low fecundity um, type system. And um, going back to the snail eaters, you know, we see a lot of those in confiscations. And one of the problems they have is this incredible bone rot. You know, they they get bruised and they get you know they, the bone just dies. But when you look at the shell, talking about anatomy, when you look at it, it's it's a soft bone. It's not a hard bone. It's like they grow so fast and so quickly. They don't put a lot of bone down, and they just they're you know it's like a like a, a fine fruit that bruises easily. And and I'm just would really like to dive into those and really kind of compare why or how they are so different. Because when, when I talk about hunting pressures, I mean you're you're talking about tens and tens of thousands harvested annually from small locations. 
So how, how can they sustain that? And I think that's a real interesting aspect because when we, when we start computing things like doing like population viability analysis, you know, we, you know, we, that's a, a tool, a mathematical tool for really trying to look at what parameters of the, of the turtle's biology um, do we really need to focus on to recover this species? And, you know, we've been looking at, there's, there's really about eight or nine things that in our toolbox that we do for conservation. Um, and one of, one of the biggest, you know, is reducing hunting. That's, that's huge. But we also kind of stick to nest protection, uh, head starting, um, some reintroductions. So there's a, kind of a, a small toolbox for, you know, species like one of the ones I work with, the big river terrapins. You know that you know we've we've really been focusing on nest protection and head starting because we're trying to get big turtles out to the water because the mortality is really highest at the juvenile stage. Now with these snail eaters, they grow so quickly. They spend so, maybe they spend so little time in the juvenile stage. Um, you know that that they can withstand these pressures because they mature young and, and they lay a lot of eggs. Where like what we've seen with some of the river turtles, I mean we've had some now for 15 years in captivity from hatchlings and they're just starting to lay eggs. Um, so they're really dependent on those adults uh, not being harvested, uh, not being killed. So um, those type of comparisons are really interesting uh, because when, we, when we're going back to, you know, looking at those red list assessments, you really have to see, look at the rate of decline and you have to understand why they're declining and, and kind of understand that Will they continue to be declining or are they under imminent threat of extinction? So those are the, some of the things that we've been looked at is just trying to under, better understand turtle biology because, you know, for years I've always heard, you know, a turtle is a turtle is a turtle, but no, 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 really it's not. And some of these models that have been created um, have been really for temperate species. And we, we have not really had long-term studies on many of these uh, tropical species. And the tropical species that tend to be studied are like the large river turtles, like the, the Potamimus in, um, in Brazil, um, the large river turtles. Uh, but we haven't really spent a lot of time studying some of the, the smaller turtles that seem such an unusual um, turtle biology. Again, because they're not critically endangered and they don't get the funds. Yeah, it seems like there is a lot of I'm working on a project with Western pond turtles and red-eared sliders and looking at kind of competition and, or I guess the potential for it. And in order to do this with the models that I'm using, you need to understand the carrying capacity for both species, which I think in ecology is something that's pretty important to know regardless. But it's pretty challenging to compute, but it, it seems to be lacking for a lot of turtle studies. And just like you're saying, it's that maybe, right, the idea that a turtle is not the same thing when it comes to life history or generation times or just kind of all aspects of its biology that will contribute to generating a population analysis or like you said, a population viability analysis over time. It, it, it's certainly doable with a lot of species, but that data is just not there in a lot of cases. It's, it's an interesting thing to think about that maybe it's not as what, challenging as we think. Yeah, you know, what I was thinking, you know, what you said about carrying capacity. I remember when I was starting my postdoc in India, that was some of the first questions the wildlife 
officials ask me, what's the carrying capacity? Because they worry about that a lot with tiger conservation because it's so based on prey. You know, are, are there enough ungulates uh, and wild hogs and other things for the, for the tigers to eat? And it's, they really look at, you know, what's the prey in the area and how that's, how that, how that impacts these large carnivore projects. But what I've seen, and, and I'm, 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 I'm curious a lot, is this kind of shifting baseline in that, you know, uh, when I was, you know, a young child, I used to see lots, a lot of penguin turtles, you know, and I would see these big populations, just, just incredible numbers. You know, one of the crazy memories I have uh, was a family vacation down to Florida and we went to Cape Canaveral and we stopped off at, at a river there and I saw just unbelievable numbers of diamondback terrapins. It just blew my mind. They were just everywhere. It was, it was incredible. Now that was 40 plus years ago. Um, and many people of your age, you know, that's not available to see, you know, you don't see these large populations. So when people see some turtles there, oh, are they at carrying capacity? No, they're, they're probably really, really reduced. Cause if you read like um, some of Bates stories and explorations of the Amazon, and he talks about populations of, you know, the giant Amazon river turtles and just the incredible diversity that, not diversity, but the just incredible numbers they saw. You look at some of the old records for nesting river terrapins in Malaysia, where they would have 40, 50,000, you know, and we're, we're so beyond, I mean, we're down to a couple hundred here and there in Malaysia um, and, and it's still going down. So I, I think that's interesting for, 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 for folks like like yourselves who are entering college and, and you're and you're looking at turtle populations and you're trying to trying to study a, you know these big turtle populations and you're trying to create these analyses and really look at population structures. I feel unfortunate that many of these populations are already um, really declined, and um, I think that that will impact your per perception on 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 things. And um, I don't think we really know carrying capacity because. Historically, the densities for turtles have been astronomical, um, and we're nowhere near what what they they used to be. You know, way way before my lifetime. If you read um, uh, Roger Conant's autobiography, which is a great read if you haven't read that one, it's that big blue book that he wrote. Kind of looks like his old field guide. You know, he talks about going to uh, Real Foot Lake in Tennessee, and the number of turtles he saw there was just enormous, just absolutely enormous. And in that book, he laments that species aren't as abundant as they used to be. So I, I think that's just an interesting perspective and one that maybe y'all can dive into with your careers. Yeah, I think it's pretty interesting just to, to think about, right? That that baseline maybe doesn't even exist in a lot of cases and we have to really, even digging back through the literature can help with that kind of thing though, in terms of estimating it. But I was reading one of the, uh, it was a, uh, PVA on hydromedusa recently and they kind of just they used for all the juvenile life stage information to input and growth the sort of sequential growth phases for different life stage of turtles they just used work that had been done on painted turtles and applied it to the hydromedusa yeah. which I feel like it's sort of a not maybe a great thing to do just in terms of the ecology it's going to be very different but uh Kind of like, yeah, sort of a. Was that Tectifera or Maximiliana? I believe Tectifera. I actually yeah. was 
paying more attention to how they were doing the analysis than the species that they were analyzing. But I believe it was Tectifera, yeah. Yeah, Tectifera and Maximiliana. I haven't seen Maximiliana. I've been to Brazil. I've been in the habitat, and I've looked for them, but I haven't found them yet. Uh, I hope to get back soon to really find those because, I mean, y'all are so lucky. You know, you can just Google and find about every every photo and and you know of, of a turtle, and you know you, it's it's at your fingertips. I I, I remember um, when I was in high school, finishing up high school before I went to college. I I was really I wanted to make a checklist of all the turtles, and I wanted to have photographs of every turtle species. And I remember buying my first digital camera and it was on this big like tripod thing it was massive it was huge and i think it was like you know oh it was so ridiculously poor quality <laughs> but i was trying to i was trying to get digital pictures and you know that's when i had my first personal computer and i was really trying to accumulate all of that and i would i dug through the literature and i dug through the literature and i wrote to so many people because i wanted to see a picture of maximiliana and I hadn't seen one. So when I first saw the, my first photo, I was blown away. They are really interesting turtles. Primitive looking long necks. Doesn't get much better than that. But uh, you mentioned river terrapins. Maybe we can, and, and I, I know that you've traveled quite extensively and we like to sort of hear the adventure stories and such. And um, But maybe you could shed some light on your work in Southeast Asia. I know a lot of You've kind of focused a lot of your efforts there and, and uh, maybe just kind of your adventures there. What sort of work have you done? Oh, well, I've, I've been really lucky. Um, after I, I finished my PhD, um, I went and did a postdoc with the San Diego Zoo. Um, I always dreamed about being a college professor, and that's what I thought I was going to be, but it just, just didn't happen. I got really lucky with the job. With um, After I finished my postdoc, I got hired by the Wildlife Conservation Society out of New York um, to help run some of their programs. Um, but a lot of that is all dependent on, you know, this postdoc I did in, in India. And while I was working in India on the red crown roof turtle, um, I started going over to Myanmar and Cambodia and Malaysia. Um, and I started really looking at, at the whole, the genus of Badiger. And, um, and one of the reasons I did was because this was in some of your questions that you sent over was that you were asking about what are some of the biggest hurdles? It's capacity. There aren't a lot of people who had, who had the opportunity to study turtles and develop the knowledge set about how to study them and, and be um, conservation champions. So a lot of my work was based just on building the capacity and that, that was really in, enjoyable. Um, and that's what I've been focusing on. And, and I got a little too good at it and, now I'm, I'm moving on and I'm, I'm kind of uh, letting go of some of the projects in Asia that I hold near and dear to my heart. Not letting go, but I don't have to go over as much because now there's people that are more than capable and are, are truly ex excelling at it. But, you know, some of the earlier days in India, you know, uh, you know, when we were riding camels up and down the rivers looking for, for turtles nest and, oh my gosh, um, I'm a big man to be on a camel. <laughs> it just doesn't really work, um, but I had a great time doing that. Um, you know, there, you know, India. Um, I think I could write volumes trying to describe my experiences in, in India because it's so incredibly different. Um, but where I worked was in this region um, in north central India, 
and it's it was long considered a lawless area because it's got all these ravines and hidden stuff and there were a long history of bandits uh, lived in there and uh, it was hot it was really really hot and there was lots of sand and we had sandstorms like true real like sandstorms that would come through um but I, I had to learn all the cultural differences i i learned you know cultural dress i learned cultural greetings uh, i made so many faux pas i did so many things backwards <laughs> i embarrassed myself a bunch of times um and then you know actually i'm thinking about myanmar and myanmar is an incredible country and unfortunately right now it's going through an extremely bad time but the people there are are wonderful and i've had a chance to go up um into the upper uh, um hukong river and it's uh an area where they they've created uh, a lot of work because they were trying to develop this area for tiger conservation and we would be out and we were riding elephants and uh we would be going um way up uh into the areas and i just going into these villages and you know a lot of the villagers, you know, had stories about uh, from World War II, the last time they really had, you know, Americans come through. Uh, I think a lot of Americans forget, you know, how involved we were in, in Myanmar, uh, then called Burma, how we were trying to build a road from India all the way across and into China. Um, and that's called Stillwell's Road. It's, it's an interesting historical aspect if you ever want to read about some history of World War II that's often glossed over we were very very involved in that um and you know i was in that region and i was talking to a lot of people and um just these these the different cultures like you know we would be out and we were patrolling for poachers once um and they they caught some guys who were trying to um hunt tigers and they had these homemade shotguns that were made from the the main tube off a bicycle like one that goes from the seat to the handlebars and just incredible stuff like that. And then these, they would have these crossbows, these handmade crossbows that were just so impressive. And, you know, they would go out and they were hunting um, some of the large bovids um, and being out in the woods. And I just can't imagine, you know, going up, trying to hunt a tiger with a homemade shotgun. I just, that just blows my mind. Um, you know, and then like Cambodia, that's a country that's really near and dear to my heart. I've spent a lot of time in Cambodia. Um, the people are truly, truly wonderful. And you have to think about in Cambodia, you know, they went through this horrible genocide. And, you know, pretty much everyone of that age remembers it. And they have, they've lost family members, they've lost, you know, parents, brothers, sisters, cousins. So they have a very tight um, family unit. Um, because they lost so many of their families. The family is extraordinarily important. So when I would go and visit and they would treat me like family, I think that was that was pretty incredible. Um, but I should be giving you guys turtle stories, not people stories. Um, no, it's interesting. It's just... Uh, oh, gosh. Um, you know, that's, that's... Well, you know, that's an important part right there is that, you know, a lot of my time in Southeast Asia is about the people and because there aren't that many turtles and you know this is this is important and this is sort of what we are going back to with this shifting baseline is that their populations of turtles are so low 
solo. So you're trying to build capacity. You're trying to teach people how to study turtles. And unfortunately, we can be out there for an incredibly long time, and we only see one or two river terrapins. You know, we, we might get three or four nests a year. So think about that. Whereas you're, you're in the United States and you can say, oh, I can go out and study a turtle population and I can be out there and I can, you know, over a course of a summer, say, you know, I can see 100, more than 100. You know, when I was working with map turtles for my master's, you know, I was on the Pascagoula River in Mississippi and I was seeing a lot of turtles and those were, you know, a state endangered species. The baseline has shifted so far that the, the turtles that we were studying are so rare that you don't get the opportunities to really see it. So one of the projects that I've been working on is, is kind of cross-pollinating with, within WCS. You know, WCS has, oh, we're in like 50 plus countries. I think maybe even 60 now. We're in a bunch of different countries and we have turtle biologists primarily in, in Latin America, including uh, you know Mexico, Central America, and South America. And then we have projects in South and Southeast Asia uh, into Indonesia, throughout the archipelagos and stuff. Um, and the po turtle populations are very different. I'm extraordinarily lucky that I've been able to spend a ton of time and seeing large turtle populations, you know, big nesting of, of the giant Amazon river turtles. And then I come over and I talk to the folks in Asia and they, they kind of, they don't really see it because they've never seen those big populations. So a few years ago, I was able to bring a bunch of uh, people over from Latin America, over to Cambodia. And we had a, a workshop there because I wanted the people from Cam from Asia, I mean, sorry, from Latin America to see what happens when populations crash and are very, very small and you're really working on small population recovery, which is a vastly different thing from managing large populations. And I'm trying to raise money now to take a lot of the people from Asia over to Brazil and spend time in Brazil and looking at these large populations because they've never seen this. They've never seen it. what happens when there's a large a congregation of, of nesting species, because I think that helps put everything into perspective. It helps them understand the things like carrying capacity and what population levels are. And it also gives them a, a, a tool to, to aim for, but also it's just, you know, one, you know, maybe like two weeks, they would catch more turtles and see more turtles and handle more turtles and study more turtles than they might do an entire career. You know, or maybe a couple of decades or a decade or so, because the populations are just so low. So I think that's that's a perspective that that is that has not really been addressed. And I think um, as we move forward with conservation, we really have to do that a bit better. But that's I, why I think like the, the the meetings we have with when the Turtle Survival Alliance has its, its coast symposium with the specialist group. You know, that's really become a, 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 an opportunity for people around the world to, to see and, and share ideas and meet. And that's why that that um, symposium is so important. Um, and I see how that's really impacting global turtle conservation because it's a chance for, for, for people to meet each other. And, you know, there's been a ton of folks now that have been like, oh, you're doing this really great work in Asia. Let me come on over and I'll spend some time with you. So it's so there's more and more people now that are, are, are traveling abroad and spending time we're developing these other projects. And I think that's just absolutely fantastic and very exciting. And I think it's directly related to, to this, the TSA symposiums that have been going on for the last you know, 20 years. Sorry, I didn't give you the best turtle stories. I mean, I, I know this is being recorded and I don't know how PG some of it is. So 
<laughs> I don't want to get in trouble. No, it's fine. We we just want to hear whatever whatever you want to say works. <laughs> yeah, anything, anything good, but yeah, oh, I'm I mean, just thinking about some of the embarrassing stories of like you know being in Indonesia, you know, wading through these volcanic swamps and you know asking, "There's no saltwater crocodiles. There's no saltwater crocodiles." And they go, "Oh yeah, no, 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 no problem, no problem." And then you spend a whole day out in the field, and then you you're leaving, you see this big sign, "Danger, saltwater crocodiles." You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I was thinking about like, uh, uh, I was in uh, Northern Australia with my my friend Sean Duty, and I was going down to see his project on the on the Daly River where he was studying uh, the, the pigment soft shell turtles. And you know, I had always wanted to see those. Those are so cool. And I was just like, what? A, they're so neat. So I flew down. I think, I think it was in between my master's or PhD, or maybe it was summer between my people. I can't remember what it was. Uh, I flew down and, and we were camping on the side of the river. And it was one of the first nights I was there and I had to get up in the middle of the night to go pee. And, and I walk away from the, you know, the tents and I'm out there peeing and I hear a rustling in the leaves. And here's this big, you know, Keladina Ragosa, you know, walking through because they get up and they move from areas to areas to areas. And that was the first time I saw, you know, my first Australian, you know, turtle is, you know, middle of the night going out to go pee. I was not expecting to, to see it, you know, a big, you know, snake neck turtle, you know, walking through headed to the river. That was, that was really wild. That's pretty cool. I did. Yeah. Australia is a whole different game. We talked to some uh, Australian turtle biologists and keepers in the past. And the, there's a lot of cool stuff from, you don't hear as much about, I feel like, if you're focused more on North American turtles and such, but that, that's a cool story for sure. Uh, maybe you've also done some work, I think, in West Africa, or at least were co-author on a paper that was pretty interesting on sort of community ecology. It was maybe yeah, uh, like it. Well, that, that's an interesting one. Um, unfortunately, I didn't get to go and do the field work. Uh, this was a young man who reached out to me um, you know, much like y'all did, you sent me, you know, you sent me an email and he was explaining to me what he wanted to do and how he was trying to write this grant and he had never written a grant. And I said, I'll, I'll help you write the grant. Cause I, I, you know, I, God, I used to be awful at it. I mean, I did, Oh gosh, graduate school. I tried to write so many grants, but never got funded. I, I was awful. Um, and so I said, hey, okay, I'll, I'll mentor you on this and I'll, and I'll, and I'll help you and I'll, I'll help you get the, the grant i'll help design the study and i'll i'll do whatever i can and um we corresponded back and forth for like two years um working on the writing and getting permits and uh i was you know a reference for a lot of a lot of that and um i was thrilled when he got the, the money i think that money was from rutherford i believe it was um he got the money and um he was doing the field work and, you know, we were just corresponding back and forth and we were talking about it. And then once he had the data, I was able to help um, analyze it for him. And I thought it was just a fabulous study because he was out really looking for the turtles and trying to understand uh, some of the community composition, because one of, one of the areas that we're really lacking uh, a lot of information is from Africa. Cause I think people forget just how big Africa is. It's huge. Um, and there's a lot of turtle species there. And um, I think there's gonna be a ton of newly described species from Africa because we've really only just, just touched the surface 
on it. And if you look at some of the distribution maps, they're, they're, they're so strange. You know, you got a spot over here separated and you got another spot, you got this, you got that. Um, and particularly now with uh, the rise of, uh, you know, much more advanced uh, genetic analysis where you can do whole genomes and stuff. I think we're going to see a lot of new species diversity uh, being, you know, new species being described in Africa. And I think that goes all back to this whole idea of capacity um, and where we, we really need to, to invest. And, and one of the areas we really need to invest is in, is in younger generations of people and giving them not just the money to do it, but that, um, that mentorship and the capacity to do it and, and helping them along the way. Um, and often, you know, providing salary. And, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, why do they, why, do, why are you giving them salary? You know, that's, I don't want to fund someone's salary. It's absolutely necessary. And, and I, I've looked, I've reviewed thousands of grants and, and, you know, for a long time, we were like, oh, we can't fund salary. We can't fund salary, but it's essential. It's essential in, in countries where it, it, it's not a hobby. It's not something, oh, I've got a, I've got a job here and on my time off, I can go study turtles. It's not like that. This is what they're doing. And this is, you know, and you have to pay them so that they can do the work because if they can't, if you're not paying them, they can't, you know, then they're, they're not going to be able to, to, you know, keep a roof over their head and, and, and have food and so forth. So I think we have to change our perception of, of that and realize that we really do have, have to, to, to pay people. And we're not talking these huge salaries, like what we have in the United States, you know, or, or Europe, you know, it's, it's a very different pay scale, but that's again, goes to how a small amount of money can make to make a big difference. Um, in, in, in that is that, you know, they can do so much and, I really think, you know, Central and, you know, South Africa are some of the areas where um, it's the biggest areas of growth. Uh, I love Pelusis. I think they're neat. They're smelly little brown turtles, but I think they're fabulous. And there's so much difference. Like you look at um, Pelusius uh, cupolata, you know, everyone got that confused with Gabonensis for a long time. And Cupolata's just got this little tiny distribution, you know, the Ivory Coast part, maybe part of Ghana and stuff. And it got hit hard by a lot of um, pet trade in the past few years. And you're like, wow, what's going on? Like, you know, and we, we, we don't have the slightest idea of what their population structure is, um, how it's doing, what's its true distribution. I mean, we take for granted that we can open a field guide and go, oh, yeah, okay, that's where they are. Or, oh, look, you look at John John Iverson's great work where he did some of those first world checklists where he took up all those museum specimens and mapped them out. I mean, that's that's an immense, immense project. And now it's, you know, become the, the check, you know, all integrated in the, in the specialist group's checklist that's put out here. And you have all these great maps and you can look at these maps and you go, this is the historical distribution of these turtles. And you get an idea of where they are. Um, we take that for granted, um, but you know, I think as a North, as being North American biologist, because there's been so much stuff. Like, if you look at high naturalist, that's a neat one too. And like you say, you okay? Well, I'm gonna go look at you know some of these distributions of say you know uh, terrapini in, in in Mexico. You know, there's there's all these sorts of things. Well, we just don't have that those sorts of capacities in in Africa, and I think 
you know, that's a, that's a real challenge. And it's, it's something I would really like to spend more time on is, is really kind of developing those and really doing some of those broad surveys. And um, what my, my good friend, uh, Phil Almond, he's been going to Ghana a lot. Um, he mostly works with sea turtles. Uh, that's his true love. But, uh, you know, he's got several looking at hinchback tur tortoises and trying to find out some of these distributions and populations of pinchback turtles but what, you know he was finding is whenever he he found populations they were mostly smaller individuals because the large individuals have been captured and sold into the pet trade or eaten in the bushmeat trade so there's a whole other realm of things we could be doing in africa and it's it is so huge and i guess if i was making recommendations for for younger younger folks is to um instead of doing some work in africa um you know, maybe learn some French. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, my French is horrible. Um, but, you know, I, I think there's some real important stuff that's going on, like, you know, in Africa. You look at pancake tortoises, you know, you know Tanzania, Kenya. Um, the amount that are sh between, like, 2016 and 2019 that were exported from um, Zambia. Was it Zambia or Zimbabwe? Maybe it was Zimbabwe. Um, you know, it's, like, it's astronomical thousands and thousands and thousands of them uh, going into the pet trade. And that's another one that, you know, you know, it's been really impacted by the pet trade. And um, we know of a few protected populations, um, but we haven't had the chance to really look at a range wide uh, population study, but we do know that, you know, on our current assumptions of turtle biology, that, the rate they were being collected was just too much. And they went on CITES Appendix 1, um, which means there's no commercial trade. Um, and we're hoping that will help reduce the, to reduce the trade. Um, and that's something else I've worked on. I, I know, sorry, this is getting a little off, but um, I get a lot of flack from people about CITES because um, I've been involved in some of the, some of the things. And, um, <clears throat> And I'm, a, I, you know, I grew up keeping turtles. Tur keeping turtles was extraordinarily important to me, and I, I think there is a real value to having pet turtles. Um, if I didn't have those pet turtles, I don't think I would have be um, where I am today. Um, but unfortunately, um, we've seen with globalization and the internet is that the the, the booming pet trade um, is increasing to such a level and. Um, it's just with many species, it's just beyond sustainable. And that's unfortunate um, because I think there are many people who are responsible turtle keepers and, and turtle breeders, and they really want to do the best for turtles. But like when you have oh, 20,000 Potamimus unifilis shipped out from South America to the pet trade markets in, in, in China, you, you know, you know, those numbers are huge. And unfortunately, I think a lot of those turtles are just going to die. And, you know, that's, that's, that's really, really unfortunate. Um, <clears throat> so I think the, I'm sorry, I, I, I was being rather secure. Is, is I, I think as a community, we really have to look at policing ourselves. And like, when you, when you see turtles in, in for sale in the U.S., and you know they didn't come in legally, you really shouldn't buy them, even though it's perfectly legal for you to buy them because they've already come into the United States. 
but you know you're supporting Ill illegal um, um, trafficking of wildlife. And I think if you really, really care for wildlife, no matter, you know, you really can't buy those wild caught turtles that you know were, in, were smuggled into the US. And that, you know, I think that's really hard for some people because they want to do the best with the turtles. You know, like I don't re remember a few years ago when all those Mexican box turtles were coming into the U.S. And I, I was approached by several people who are, are love turtles, heart and soul, and they were like, "Oh, I don't want them to die. I should buy them, and I should, I, I we can maybe we can try to build some colonies and stuff." And I'm like, "They came in illegally, and." Um, you shouldn't buy them uh, because, it, you know, you're just going to continue to support this trade and make it more profitable. And we've seen that over and over again with like rare turtles, like, you know, Kinosterna um, Cora and Kinosterna Vodai that we just described, you know, very small populations. Vodai particularly very small, just near Puerto Vallarta. Um, even before it was described, a few photos were circulated and within months they were showing up in markets in italy and, yeah. and japan and there's a drive by many collectors to have the new species the different species i mean one of the species i've been working on in indonesia is is, is a classic example it's the caledina macordi mccord's snake neck turtle from the island of Rhodi. um it's not a remarkable turtle in its in the sense it's a beautiful turtle it's a turtle i really like um but it, it's you know it's a brown snake neck turtle it's not beautiful yellows and reds and oranges and stripes and colorations <clears throat> it's not that but at the height of the demand they, they were selling for like five thousand dollars a piece you know there was just incredible demand and that turtle got hit by like the, the the double triple whammy it's from a very small little island off the coast of timor um it was only found in about 13, 15 lakes, small lakes, you know, you know, um, and um, there had been collection pressure for quite a while for wildlife, but they was all, everyone just thought it was uh, one of the more common side necks. So it would go, you know, to the markets and be sold in the wild animal trade. Uh, but when it was described as a new species, the demand went skyrocketed. So everyone went down to the river and caught and went down to the lakes and caught as many as they can because they were all of a sudden worth something. Before they were just a pest and people didn't like them when they were fishing and they were like, eh, I don't like these turtles. They steal my bait. But the prices went really high. So all these adults were captured. And uh for you know, and everyone's like, Oh man, that's that's really bad. But you know, they can't be extinct. You know, you know, we we removed some adults, there's gotta be juveniles. Well, in doing all my surveys, what we found was that, you know, in the in the 60s, maybe early 70s, um, the predatory fish, the snakehead fish, was introduced into those those lakes for uh, by the government as a part of a means for creating more protein source for for the people. And it's likely that those snakeheads, which are incredibly prolific and and just they're they're just oh man, they're like just like little sharks. They eat everything. They probably ate all the juveniles. Just wiped them all out. So you had huge pet trade demand that took off most of the adults. The juveniles were probably consumed by an invasive predator. You have a small distribution of only a few lakes. And then all of a sudden you have land use changes and climate change. And now you're down to like two lakes 
that have water year round that are suitable for the return of the, the turtles. And one has snakeheads and one doesn't. So we've been working on this like snakehead reduction program, but we're probably never going to get rid of the snakeheads. They're just too, too abundant and too prolific. So with that lake, we're probably always going to have to be managing it. We're always probably going to have to be releasing turtles that are, are um, you know, too big for the, for the fish to swallow. Um, and they're, they're, they're extinct in the wild. They're gone. And I know we, you know, the, the specialist group, the, in the, and, uh, you know, they're, you know, considered possibly extinct in the wild, but, you know, we've done extensive surveys and, and, you know, the, all the villagers said the last time they saw any was, you know, o o well over a decade ago. That's the last time. And I, and I went out and I met the, the main hunter trapper guy who collected most of the turtles for export. And he he gave us all this incredible information about where he caught turtles, how many turtles he caught from each lake, and he spent a lot of time with us out trapping for turtles. Um, and he realizes that you know he didn't know that they were unique to the island. He just was trying to make a living, and, and you know he's not a rich man by any means. He's not a rich man. Um, and now he really wants to work on on bringing the turtles back, and he, feel, he feels like that's his next. Uh, do you know mission in life to do is to help bring the turtles back but when we start looking at recovering turtle populations i'm not even sure what the oh we were talking about africa i'm not here i'm talking about indonesia um but again that's the important part it's about finding those people and if you look at where conservation programs are most successful and where we've really had leaps and bounds it's when we have champions you look at Caliard, Steve Platt in Myanmar. You look at Sita Sam in Cambodia. You look at Shailendra Singh in um, in India. You know Camilla Ferreira in Brazil, Herman um, in Colombia. These are the people that really champion the turtles. And I think we have to realize that as North Americans, that fly in and fly out conservation just doesn't work. You have to have the capacity on the ground. And the best way that we can improve conservation is investing in, in people and giving them the, the resources and the logistics and all the help that they need so that they can do the job. So that's my soapbox. And that's <laughs> I'm, so I'm, interesting. I'm, yeah, I'm sorry, that got really long-winded. So, um, but yeah, as I mean, you see, it, it's, it's all kind of interconnected. Right, that, that's how we like it, I think. It's just kind of take it wherever, right? It just certain questions bring up just a, a plethora of different experiences i think it's a really interesting thing but it's cool how how much that you're sort of bringing people into conservation it's maybe something we don't necessarily think about as much but yeah right if you're going to make a project that is sustaining in a different place that you really have to get the people from that place involved in order to make an impact it's a simple thing but i feel like a lot of times we don't really think about that from the control room. Maybe if that, that that's probably not the right way to say it, but it sort of from our perspective here in North America, things are, are relatively good. And we, we sort of say, oh, we can do a lot of these things, but we really have to invest in other people. Right. That's yeah, it, it is an American attitude. And it, and it's something that, that I learned on my first trip to, to India because I was like, you know, I've caught turtles around the world. I can do this. I can come in and I can make a change. And I was smacked upside the face by the, by the cultural differences and, and the, the number of people and, and 
uh, you know, here I am. I'm an overweight guy. I, I just flew in on a, a very expensive plane ticket. I've got a laptop computer. I've got a really nice camera. Um, I got really nice clothes, nice boots. And, you know, I'm showing up, you know, and I'm, I'm the, you know, telling them don't eat the turtles. I am, you know, I am, I'm wealthy beyond comparison to them. They, they could never imagine, you know, <clears throat> you know, having enough money to do what I just did to come over and look at a turtle. So we have to really put that in, into perspective. It's, it's, it is a very much a, a kind of this thing that, you know, Americans, we have often think we can, we can just fix it and we can go in and we can, we can do it, you know, and we, we can do it quickly. Um, and I think we have to kind of check some of our, our assumptions and some of our cultural biases, you know, at the door when, when we, when we look at that, because, you know, far too often I've gone into places and I've met with villagers and I'm not the first person to come there to want to study turtles. And they talk about how they were really angry at the last person that was there because they didn't really involve them. They didn't talk to their elders. They didn't work with their communities. They didn't um, abide by some of the community laws and standards. And I, and I think that's the toughest thing because you know, from like for my postdoc, I was supposed to gain, gain a ton of data to publish it. You know, that was my goal was to get a bunch of data and publish it, you know, because that's the currency in academia, publications. And I was distraught after my first three or four months there because I wasn't collecting a lot of data. And I think that's when I really, really realized that um, conservation is different. And in that sense is that, you know, we can do conservation science, but conservation true action sometimes goes goes at a slower pace than we want. And that's that can be really frustrating for a lot of a lot of people. In that, you know, you have to kind of take your foot off the gas a little bit. And you know, we're we're in an interesting stage because you know, 20 years ago we thought we were gonna lose dozens of species. We, we you know we we thought species were just gonna blink out. We were gonna lose so many species. Um, but there's been just an incredible, incredible uh, outpouring of, of, of folks, and um, we've 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 kind of stopped it on a lot of the things. But the populations are still small, and now we're entering this new phase, which I think is the most exciting phase: is recovering these populations and putting turtles back into the wild, and working with some of this, this population recovery. Uh, but before I go on, I, I wanted to touch on one of your other your other aspects that you were talking about. Um, I recently published a, uh, a report uh, on conservation priorities within South and Southeast Asia. And I, I published that with ASAP, which is the Asian Species Action Partnership. Um, in 2011, we had a meeting in Singapore. It was a big meeting, it was a very big meeting. We brought people in from all over the world and we were talking about Asian turtles. And uh, myself, Andrew Wald and Colin Poole, we wrote up the findings of that and we made a 10-year plan and we wrote it and um nice pretty colored pictures and we you know we published it in a hard copy and there's still some hard copies floating around um and i felt really great about that that was that was one of the really things well i was went back i've had a couple more workshops a couple more red listing things and and uh, so uh asap approached approached me about doing um uh 10 years on, you know, another, how, how are we looking at things retrospectively after 10 years? I said, sure, let's do it. That, that's really interesting. Um, 
So I did. And a lot of that information was taken from these workshops for red listing and, and also a ton of reaching out and, and, and talking to people um, in the field who are doing the work and just the years of gathering data, years of reading grant proposals and so forth. So we had a lot of information. And, you know, myself, Andrew and Colin, you know, we wrote it up and we put it together and we had it edited and they went to the designer and they had all the pictures and everything like that. I was really proud. And I put it out on the, the specialist groups listserv, you know, here's a copy for everyone. And it, it's, you know, it's on uh, ResearchGate under, you know, my profile and stuff. And I thought this was a really neat thing. And I was really hoping it would um, generate more, more thought, more discussion, and it would help funding organizations and, it would help country programs and researchers and other all these other people to look at what was going on. And for the most part, I got really positive comments, but I got one comment from someone in, in Vietnam and he was like, this is great, but why aren't there more Asians involved, Asian people? And I was like, Whoa. and, and I, you know, and I said, well, you know, there were so many people I met and talked with, they all put into it. And I just uh, accumulated the information you know, it wasn't me coming up out of the vacuum for it. But looking back, um, I probably should have had more co-authors. And that's sort of the, this, this problem is that um, when you're creating these big documents and you bring in a ton of different co-authors, it, it, it can be quite cumbersome, quite difficult. But again, going back to, back to the people, you know, I, I'm very privileged. And that I've been able to go to all these different countries and, and do all these things. And that's what's allowed me to accumulate and, and process and synthesize this information. But we haven't been able to afford those privileges to many people living in the area. And I think that's something we need to do better. We need to do better at We need to have more regional conferences. And I would like to see organizations like the TSA and other organizations like the Turtle Conservancy and, and so forth really focus on some regional meetings and helping fund those regional meetings so that we can have more people who are able to have that broader perspective. And that's a, that's a different type of capacity. But I think if we're really going to have um, progress, it's something we need, we need to do. And it, we're, we're, you know, I remember having to actually type out letters to people, you know, I'm, I'm that old. <laughs> and, and you know, we're sending stuff, you know, on WhatsApp and Messenger and Skype and all these other things. And we're, we're communicating at such a rapid pace, but there's really is something about actually being in a room, sitting down over dinner or drinks or, or whatnot, and really having these long discussions um, that really helps build that capacity. And we have to move away from only a slept few with the privilege who've been able to go abroad and, and do all of this to letting more and more people have that perspective because I think that perspective is key to advancing turtle conservation. That, that's an interesting, it really, I think, yeah, right. The capacity building and, and the meetings, meetings are, they're fun too, right? It's a, people want to come to that and listen to presentations and it can inspire maybe some people that are just getting into conservation. It's something that at least, uh, for me, the TSA was kind of like that in 2017. I'd always been interested in turtles, but went to one of the meetings and was like, yeah, this is definitely something I'd like to. So, I mean, yeah, that's uh, something for 
right. If we had more meetings going on in, in different places, we could have situations like that and kind of, yeah, a different type of capacity building. It, it's a, a good thing, I think. Maybe we can uh, switch and talk a bit, a, a little bit. Uh, we're starting to get up on time here, but just a little bit about, uh, I, I believe, uh, your thesis that you did, it was pretty interesting, kind of the, the you kind of highlighted the difference between the embryonic diapause and astubation. It was pretty, it, kind of an interesting thing that folks may not even really be, realize is something. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Or what well, well, sure, this, this, this is kind of neat. So um, when I was in high school, um, you know, I, I, went to a, a reptile importer's place and he had these two turtles that I had no idea what they were. So I had to, so I bought, them. you know, I was, I was 16 at the time and um, they were Acanthochelys pallidae pectoris, the Chaco sidenic turtle, little brown turtle. Never didn't know what they were. And I had been real lucky as like, like you, I'd reached out to other people and Carl Ernst was up at George Mason University. So I, I wrote to him, I said, hey, I've got these turtles. Um, I'd really like to talk to you about them. He goes, oh, bring them up, bring them up. So I brought him up and he, he took five rolls of pictures, of, you know, five camera roll, film rolls of pictures. And, you know, that's that was, you know, late eighties. That's when film was expensive. And I was like, oh, it takes five rolls of photos from one turtle, this is crazy. And he, he really wanted them. He was like, I want them, you know, and I was like, no, no, I want to keep them. And he goes, okay, if you ever decide to get rid of them, you, you call me and, you know, stuff. And, and so I was like, wow, these are cool. What's, what's going on? And every year I would get eggs and I would do what you normally do. I take the egg and put it in the incubator and I would like wait for it to develop and nothing ever happened. So I started diving in the literature, really looking, and I came across some of Mike Mike Ebert's papers, and he was talking about this thing called embryonic diapause. I had never heard of it; I didn't know what it was. So Mike and I started talking, um, had some great conversations about it, and we were. This is all early; we didn't even know about chilling eggs and all this other stuff. And so I was collecting the data, and I was very lucky to have an incredible mentor when I went to Virginia Tech. It was Robin Andrews. She's uh, mostly a lizard ecologist, studied anolis lizards and did some amazing stuff. Um, and she helped me write my first publication from the data I collected in high school. And that went to her review. And I was so proud, you know, beating my chest. Um, but then I went off and did, did a master's and I was studying math turtles, but I really wanted to figure out what the heck was going on with these turtles. Why couldn't I get these turtle eggs to hatch? And that led me to talking to a number of people and I was, I wanted to go to Argentina. I wanted to study these turtles in Argentina. And Carl looked at me and goes, no, no, that's too hard. It's too far. You know, you got to get the data to, to write your dissertation. Uh, don't study that. So he's like, talk, talk to Mike Ewart. So I was talking to Mike and we were talking about what species to study. And he thought store type was tripercatus because they have big clutches, they have a diapause and we could, um, you know, you could do some split clutch studies and stuff. So I flew down to Mexico and I met with up with Dick Vogt. And we went out and we had this population of store typists and I, we were catching like 25 a day, you know, real big honker, massive store typists, the big giant muscle, just, just huge, just absolutely awesome, awesome turtles. 
And I was so thrilled. I'm like, this is what I'm going to study. This is where I'm going to study that. I'm going to, I'm going to buy a little house in this village. Everything's set. I come back next year and every single turtle in that river system had been caught, eaten, gone. I was heartbroken. Just, just, Oh, what am I going to do? I had, I had just, I, this is what I was going to do. And I, I called Mike and I talked to Dick and they were like, well, why don't you study Kenosternids? You know, let's look at the mud turtles. They're smaller clutch, but they, you know, they've got an interesting stuff and there's a little bit of literature and you can look at stuff uh, across different species and just different geographic. So I was like, okay, maybe I'm going to go look at Kenosternosornensis in Arizona. And I was like, ah, that's not going to work. I want to go back down to Mexico. I love New Mexico because I spent a ton of my life in Central America. You know, my first trip abroad was to Costa Rica when I was right out of high school. And I went down and studying sea turtles and catching rhino climbing. Just loved it. Just absolutely loved it. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll study Kinosternis. So I was doing it on New Mexico. And um, Dick had left for his position in Brazil. And there was a field station in Los Tuxlas. And um, this was in Central Veracruz, Mexico. And the field station is run by the University of uh, Mexico in Mexico City. So I had a place to stay and I had, there was a lake with turtles. I knew I wanted to get a lot of eggs and I wanted to just do some of the basic. I wanted to incubate them and do some manipulations and look at what was going on. And, and so I created, I, I really dove into it. And basically what we were seeing is that there's, there's two types of turtle reproductions. There's a one and two, and this is John Legler and Ed Malk really published on this first you know there's a type that you know come out of the river they lay on a sandy bank eggs develop rapidly boom they're out and that's that's it they have this defined nesting period whereas you have a lot of tropical turtles that are can be smaller they lay smaller clutches but they lay a lot more clutches and they have it over an extended period so let's say they start nesting in october august august october november and they'll nest, they'll nest all the way through into january march April when it's when and that's when the rainy season starts again and so there's this big circle but what, what I was able to see is that with embryonic diapause that the, that it there was this delayed developmental period where the, the embryos were in arrest and they all came to about the same point in time and that's when they all developed to about the same point in time so they were ready to hatch when the conditions for the hatchling were were appropriate for them to, to survive once they hatched and I, I loved it. I got to play with a lot of turtle eggs and did a lot of candling and looking at stuff. And I got into looking at some of the lipid layers and and how, you know, female um, sequestering yolk inside the egg is so important for turtles in their first year of growth and all these sorts of things. And I, you know, I, I nerded out. But it's an interesting part of uh, aspect of it. And if you look at turtles in general and you look at all the different turtles, Embryonic diapause is so much more common um, than what we we considered. Uh, so many people have just looked at it uh, with the turtle biology in the kind of the North American European sense. You know, they've looked at river turtles or so forth, and they they lay their eggs, rapid development, and they get out. But if we're going to be doing turtle conservation on a lot of these uh, subtropical and tropical species, you know. Um, there is a, a delayed development and we have to understand that delayed development if we're gonna be doing real hands-on manipulative conservation. Um, but it also allows us to get a little bit better understanding of um, their status and, and how and how the populations can grow. Because you know, you know, you have a little mud turtle 
you know, that lays two to three eggs at a time, but might lay five to six clutches. You know, that's, that's what's, that's what's really cool is it's able to put all those things and they all hatch at about the same time. So, you know, everyone's like, Oh, how does a, a little turtle that only lays a couple eggs, maybe once or twice a year work, but no, they lay multiple clutches more frequently. Um, and they're really, uh, putting their eggs out there. And there's some other theories like bet hedging theories and all this other stuff that can go into. Um, but it's just a very interesting uh, um, physiology uh, aspect of turtles. And we see it more and more. And, and there's, there's also, there's, 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 um, there's an estimation that some like Kinesterne sorenensis, you know, they rapidly go through development and they sit in the egg and, and they, they estivate in the egg. Um, uh, towards the end and wait for the rains to come. You know, you look at Achilles and Sculpt for the pig nose, you know, those kind of hatch when the eggs get completely, you know, inundated and then they pop out of the egg in the water. Um, you know, that's like when Rod Kennett was publishing that stuff on uh, the Caledina and the nesting underwater, you know, that was crazy. You look at, you look at Dermatimis, um, they barely come out of the water. They kind of nest in kind of a little right next to the edge of the water. Um, and those eggs, could survive inundation. Hardella, you know, that was a that was a species uh, that people struggled to figure out how to incubate. And it's got a crazy diapause, but oftentimes those have to sit in the water for for weeks before they'll 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 start developing once they're removed. There's some really crazy turtle incubation stuff um, that we're just just trying to understand and go on. And so. Again, a turtle, a turtle is not a, you know, when everyone says a turtle is a turtle is a turtle. No, it's not. There, there's some very big differences and that all plays into how we do conservation. So I can, I can go on and on and on about it because it, it's, it's so fascinating. Like you look at like Orlydia borneensis, that's the largest hard shell turtle, you know, in, in, in Southeast Asia. They're massive, they're big turtles, huge heads and stuff. You know, we don't have a single population of those under protection. And and we really don't know much at all. There's only a couple couple remarks about where they nest. Everyone's like, oh, they nest in piles of rotting vegetation. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, they're in some peat swamp, so they got to come up and nest. But what's what's really going on, and, and how how does that work? And um, again, it's really hard for people to go study them because the populations are so low, and you've got to try to find that individual population. But you don't want to let too many people know because then they'll be hunted out like my po that population of uh, tripercatus that I was trying to study. Um, so, so yeah, it, it's, it's, it's interesting. And one other, this, this, this is a cool one. And, I, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. Uh, Platinus platycephala. Have you guys ever looked into the literature about them? There's an old paper that was, um, by, I think it was BB. I'm not sure. I'll have to go back and look. Um, that showed they had a triploid diploid mosaicism, you know. Yeah, I've seen so, this before. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and in you know, no one's really looked into that. I mean, we know about this type of chromosome stuff in fishes, and it is, it's you know what we see is some type of uh, uh, parthenogenesis or uh, ability to change sexes and what's going on, and no one's really followed up on that, and no one has really kind of figured out where that population of turtles because he got those turtles from the pet trade. And some of the other populations that people have studied um, <clears throat> haven't had that. So is it just, I think they were thinking it was French Guiana that the turtles came from. But if, if there's a student that really wants to do a cool project, go, go find that population and figure out what, what the heck they're doing. That would be awesome.
Yeah. <laughs> I was talking to uh, a few weeks back, a researcher doing uh, work with the Knowles, and he has a tetraploid in Knowles, although they oh, were wow. hybrid crosses. So Who I guess it's no, I, I forget the exact species, but it was it was something along the line. Uh, yeah, I, I don't remember the species. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was kind of an interesting thing. It's just, uh, yeah, kind of an, uh, a, a cool comparison there. But yeah, no, that that I've come across that paper before, and yeah, it's sort of odd that there wasn't any sort of follow up to that. It seems like something that that's worth investigating. Yeah, I dreamed about that one, but I haven't been able to do it. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I have one more question concerning the sort of diapause. You said it it's sort of an environmental adaptation, but when it comes to actually working with certain species, it's impossible to incubate them effectively if you don't put them through that ace division or diapause. So is that, I guess, maybe if it was an adaptation many eons millions of years ago it's becoming grain to the point where it's necessary is it still a hundred percent in response to the environment or is there some level of just this is how it works right it well it's interesting okay so in insects which is diapause has been most studied and there's a hormone that's produced and it's really related to light cycle and you know, it's in mammals. You know, it's you know, it's part of the pituitary gland, because you know, there's there's all types of things like in mammals where you have delayed implantation, and there's there's all kinds of different forms of, of, of arrested embryonic development. But um, in turtles, what I've always would like to do is to have a, a controlled study where you have turtles under different light cycles, and seeing how that impacts the, the amount of diapause that the turtles have. Um, that's my hunch. And I think that, uh, you know, for a lot of people who are, who are keeping turtles, um, you know, we often don't pay quite as much attention to light cycles. Um, and I think, I think that's really important. Um, you know, I've got several friends who have been <clears throat> trying to hatch, uh, uh, Frynaps Williams eyes eggs and haven't been successful in trying to hatch those. They get eggs every year, but they never hatch. So that's the question of, okay, what's, what's going on with the diapause? Why do we have to take the cool them to temperatures that are pretty extreme, sometimes outside of what you would normally see in, in the wild, much lower? Well, there's a lot going on in soil physics. And one of the aspects that we haven't really investigated is soil salinity. And, hey, turn the TV down, um, the soil salinity. Yeah, the kids are watching cartoons. Um, because, you know, soil salinity changes throughout the year and um, it has an impact on the, the osmosis, the water transfer and the water vapor going through. So I've been very curious about how, how that impacts the eggs. And, you know, I think we haven't really looked into that. You know, we look at like the acidity uh, of, of different eggs, like how acidic the nesting incubation medium is and how changing acidity can also be an environmental cue because when when the turtles lay their eggs and the, the embryos are arrested, you know, they're in the late gastrulous stage, that's still under maternal genetic control. They that embryo has not developed its own control of its genetics. It's you know, it's it's all based on what's going on from the maternal influence. So 
if we look at what's going on maternally and, and investigate that, then we pair that with what we're seeing in the soil. And you know, we're, we're, we're in the emphasis, we've really been focusing on just the variable on, on, on moisture and temperature, but there's so much else going on in, in the soil, uh, pH, salinity, um, oxygen transfer, those sorts of things. And if you start looking at water potential, uh, which is measured in kilopascals, and how those water molecules move within the, the soil particles, um, and how those soil particles can can be created from evaporation, and that that you know it's 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 a water vapor, and sometimes water vapor doesn't have all of the salinity, doesn't have it can be influenced by by the pH, but there's changes, there's seasonal changes in that, and I think that's a whole big area of investigation, and if I if I was still had a chance to go back to Mexico and study the, study those um, turtles some more. I would I would try a lot more manipulations um, to see if we can get to some of those answers. Can you can you trick it? This the because as you know, captive husbandry and, and zoos and everything like that. You wanted to to skip the diapause and really get into the development and hatch and hatch quickly. And you want to hatch a turtle that has the most yolk reserves because most yolk reserves, I mean, they're going to grow, usually grow the most. So we have to really look into those aspects. Did, did I answer your question or did I, was that just totally too far off the deep end? No, I think it, it does it, in terms of highlighting the fact that, yeah, looking at all of the sort of the, the interplay between maternal influence, but also environment and how that influences sort of embryological evolution, I guess. There's a lot of opportunity there. And it, it's kind of an interesting dynamic. You've got something that's not sort of freed from influence from, from the thing in which it came in an environment that's also influencing that simultaneously. It's kind of an interesting sort of dynamic to think about it. Yeah, because there's, you know, if you look at um, annual fish, like annual killifish, you know, these are populations of fish, you know, they lay their eggs in small forest ponds, the ponds completely dry, eggs are in a state of embryonic arrest and they wait for the next rain. Um, those are heavily influenced by, by soil dynamics, by the amount of peat or rotting vegetation or whatnot in there. And you think about that, you think about, oh, there's, if they're laying eggs in rotting vegetation, you've got methane, very little oxygen. You know, so how, how, do, how do soil gases play in, in, into these, these uh, you know, these incubation periods? Because, you know, a lot of soils produce a lot of methane and, you know, that's a lot of, you know, gases that are coming out. Is, is that some of the things that we need to start looking at if we're going to start breaking these diapauses or really understanding the things? Because, you know, I've, I've tried incubating all kinds of different substrates and different materials. And, you know, usually for me, if I incubate on like really, really like decomposing um, like water hyacinth, you know, uh, that's degrading rapidly. You have um, you can produce heat. In that sense, like when you're, it's composting, so it's producing heat, but it's also very low oxygen. It can become anaerobic. So there's 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 a ton of interesting stuff with soil science, and I do have to say that I got really interested in it because my PhD advisor, uh, Willem Rosenberg at Ohio, um, when I said I wanted to study this, he handed me this big, fat, thick book, and it was all soil soil physics. And he goes, "Go read this and come back to me." 
<laughs> so, you know, I was not a good physics student. Oh, no, I wasn't a good physics student. But I wish I had applied myself a bit more in physics so that I could understand what was really going on in soils. So that's it's another great, great topic for young biologists is to really try to figure out what the heck is going on. Because, every, you know, we study stuff in sand and sand is, you know, water vapor moves through sand very easily. But you, if you start looking, you know, we know that clays are really bad for incubating eggs because it tends to, my dog just got the zoomies, um, you know, it blocks the pores and there's no oxygen transfer. But we, you know, turtles don't always nest in sand. They don't nest in, they're in clay. They have all these variety of different nesting substrates. So I, I think that would be a really fascinating, bigger, broader study for someone to dive into for um, dissertation work. An important work too. We're at, at the Turtle Conservancy. They've been pulling out eggs kind of left and right. And it seems like there's, yeah, a lot to, how do we most effectively, this is just one example, but yeah, you're talking about work and sort of XC2 work in all these different countries. How do we really maximize for every species is an interesting thing. And then Jason, I think as a connection too, to that or sort of in the Ohio area, that's a cool, kind of a cool thing. Yeah, I, I was I was at um, uh, OU at, in Athens for almost eight years. I was there for a while. I was going back and forth to Mexico, and uh, it was a neat, neat place to live. Axel, please take Charlotte outside. I'm on the phone. <laughs> Working on uh, online. Well, I think we can start to wrap things up. We've gone... We try to keep things to an hour. Through. We could all, I think, talk for the entire day, but oh, we yeah, got easily. <laughs> um, but we also do something. I, I actually forgot to mention this. I, it's it's fine if this is too on the spot, but we do a little trivia at the end. Oh, uh, okay. Trivia. So <laughs> if, if you want to, I don't know if you've got like two or three kind of obscure turtle facts that kind of on your mind, but. If you want to just hit us with a few obscure oh. turtle trivia questions, we can. We like uh, the little game's kind of fun, I guess. <laughs> okay, what 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 turtle genus has the most ver vertebral scutes? Oh, that's okay. Well. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'll give I'll, I'll give you some hints. Uh, Southeast Asian. No, the Kelly's. Yeah, Nota Kelly's. It's a monotypic genus. It has seven vertebral scutes. Very good. Very, yeah, very good. That's a really yeah. cool turtle that we don't know much at all about. It's kind of like the, you know, it's a lot like Leucocephalon and Sulawesi. Um, so stream-dwelling turtle. You know, I got fascinated in that turtle um, because when I was your age, um, you know, I was in high school and I saw a price list for reptiles and it said, purple turtle and i was like what the hell is a purple turtle <laughs> and they do have a little bit of a purple tint i think it's from some of the like the cyanobacteria that grow on them but um very 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 cool turtle and, and one incredibly worthy of a study and you can find them in singapore so if you can afford singapore that would be a great place to study nota kelly's that's that's a cool one. any other oh <laughs> uh, let me think let me think let me think that's one of my favorite ones um it's tough to come up with a long. No, okay. What what turtle has the longest incu known incubation? I got this one too, but we can. Go you ahead. you think you got it? I think I've got it. Yeah. All right. Well, hit me with it. 
Go with it. I'll see if it's the same one I'm thinking. Keladina Expansa, 648 days, I think. Yep. That's the, it's that there's, there's some debate between that and Longa Colas. Okay. What was the longest longer Colas? I'm trying to remember. Um, I have to go back and read my dissertation. I think I had it. (laughs) 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 Oh, man. Um, I'm trying to think of some other good ones right off the top of my head. Um, I was thinking about Claudius and stuff. Um, that's it. Claudius is such a crazy turtle. Oh, um, which Kinesternin has the smallest annual activity period? Oh man, uh, I gave you Kinesternin. That's that's easy enough. And I'm talking about Mexico. So which one in Mexico has the shortest activity period? <laughs> well, right now I think it's Akutum. Akutum is a really interesting one. So you've got the rivers that kind of go through um, the wetlands, and then you have that natural little berm, and then it goes into like a flat area, which are oftentimes wetlands on, on their own. Well, Akutum is in that thin strip of forested habitat um, along the rivers. And we were seeing activity periods of about two months a year. Oh, jeez. Wow. The rest of the time they're buried like under that. the dirt. And they're tiny and they're cute as all get out. And, you know, that's interesting. Like with Claudius, Claudius has a little bit longer. It's probably three or four months while the wetlands still have water. But, you know, you see these obese Claudius in collections because they just feed them year round. They don't let them uh, estivate because they spend a ton of their time estivating. And, people, and you know, we're, we're in the, oh, they're going to give me water all year. This is going to be perfect. And we're going to keep them and we're going to feed them because it's fun to watch them eat. Um, but yeah, they have these long periods of time where they're they're not active. Um, I like the, what's the, oh um, what's that the Caledonia in Australia, uh, Western Australia, perfectly round. I can't believe I'm forgetting the name. The sandstone, Steindacker. Stand yeah, Stand That's another one. I mean, talk to Sean Duty. He'll tell you stories about going out and you know those things have incredibly short uh, activity periods. And that's one. That's the one. That's really high on my bucket list to go see. Um, I saw one when I was, you know, a teenager for sale, and it was astronomically more money than I had as a teenager. Uh, but I did get to see it. and I got a couple of photographs. Um, that's the only one I've ever seen, and I'm dying to get back to Australia to go see that one and really look at what the heck it's doing, because it's an unturtle turtle. And I think those are what I'm really been interested in. The latter part of my career is looking at these turtles that just don't fit the norm. I like that phrase, unturtle turtle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, look at this. So this, this is a, a Borneoensis. I noticed yeah. that right away. Yeah. yeah. So um, you see the, the big fossa here, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, the, the local name is Totung because, you know, they come up when the big, this is a male, when the females nest, you know, they get up and they go bang, 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 bang. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone's like, well, you know, they're, you know, like, oh, they're, you know, stuff, but these, I would love to someone to do like some physics because these, you know, this is just a thin bit of uh, scoots that are over here. You know, what, what purpose are these? Is this a, a means for them to hear long distances? Because we know turtles are talking, but is there other types of drumming or other things? Because, you know, there are other turtles that have these, mostly it's just in juveniles, but in this species, it's really pronounced. So, 
if, if there could be someone who had that the physics and understanding of, of, of bioacoustics and, and, and so forth and try to really kind of model what's going on and are these related to, to um, perceiving the sounds, I would be really fascinated. Or are these guys using it somehow to make, to make sounds? Are they somehow internally drumming? I don't know. I just think it's fascinating. Uh, or maybe it's just uh, a holdover, you know, from early development. I mean, you know, who knows? I mean, I think we're kind of hoping to, that it's something really interesting and something cool, but um, it could just be, you know, just evolutionary constraint. But I, I would, you know, if I had a million years to, to live, I would I would dive into that study too. It, it looks like the, like the biggest females are fully ossified though. There's no gaps left there. So yeah. Perhaps. Yeah, it seems to be, it seems to be mostly in the males um, that it I've was, seen the most, but the females tend to have it a little bit smaller. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, I if there was some sort of function to it, like communication wise, then maybe it would be something more between males. Or uh, if the females are fully ossified, then they wouldn't be capable of some sort of communication, or like assuming that those yeah. gaps would provide that. Well, you've seen how these guys are so uh, diachromatic and that yeah. there's seasonal changes in, the, in their coloring. And a lot of, they, they probably have the most seasonal changes in their coloring, but you look at Badiger Kachuga, you look at Badiger Trivictata, when the males are in breeding season, they develop these incredible bright colors. So, you know, I think this is about uh, female sex selection. You know, they're picking the males that have the most vibrant colors. And what we saw in captivity was well, oftentimes if you got a, one male with one female, the females just wouldn't mate. But if you put five or six males in it, and the males are beating up on each other, and you would get this one where this just—he's the you know, the ruler of the roost, and he gets this bright, bright colors. He was the one that was mating with the females. So the so it's a, this idea of this female. So perhaps the males are doing something where they're using this to to make a sound or hear a sound, and it's part of this some kind of male-male combat, or maybe it's the the males trying to pick up on female sounds because males tend to you know move around a great deal more than the, the female so maybe they're trying to use it to find the females to where to go mate or maybe they're just using it to to hear other sounds of other turtles to congregate because like i'm when, years and years ago when i was studying the lepidokelis olivacea you know with the big aerobotus we were trying to understand how do they all come to one little tiny beach you know how did they come from all over the ocean and come here so we were talking about pheromones and hormones and trying to understand if this whole natal homing and what was going on. But, you know, it wasn't really until we realized that they're probably communicating some type of vocalizations that travel so far in water and that's how they're congregating. Um, it's a whole other area of, of social sciences because, you know, I, I remember in college when I was taking, you know, animal behavioral, bi you know, behavioral biology, you know, turtles weren't in that at all. You know, they were, they, turtles don't have any social structure. They don't have any, any real interesting behaviors. So I think we're, we're at that, that kind of that real tip of the iceberg and can really start to come up and not try to understand that. And that's, that's important again for conservation because think about it, you know, we're doing all these um, head starting and we're raising turtles in captivity. Are we, are we disrupting some of those um, social learning processes? You know, some of these communications, we, we, we don't know. So, uh, you know, it's something to, to, to consider when we're doing these management practices to assure that you know we're not um, screwing up some of the natural processes, we just don't know because we don't know what they are. All right, I mean, I think that that's 
You want to say something? <laughs> now, right when I'm getting excited and talking about cool no, stories, it me off. <laughs> like, it would make perfect but sense yeah. for there to be long-term auditory communication between uh, sea turtles. Like, if that yeah. kind of distance is involved, how, how could they communicate any other way? Like, Yeah. Yeah, it, I mean, it totally makes sense. Um, I, I know there's been several studies on the, their ears and looking at uh, sound perception, but it, it also makes sense if you have a big shell, you know, it's a big drum, and you know, you're you're able to probably pick up a lot more stuff. Um, so I, I'm just I'm just curious about it. I've never been one much for acoustics, um, but it, it would be just fascinating if someone could dive into that i would be thrilled to see see a type of research the sound waves there's a it was like an overview that was written by uh someone who had done work with turtle sound perception and ears and i think it was one of the radiata journal uh one of the oh, magazines. Okay. Yeah. and he, he actually talks about some work that was done i think in the 80s that showed that there are sound receptors in the shells of turtles and not in your typical, not like those that are present in the ear. I, I don't know the specifics behind the differentiation. Oh, if you find that, send it to me. I'd love to read it. Yeah, I can find it again. It's kind of an interesting thing. I forget the specifics, but yeah, it says that they can perceive low frequencies through the shell. So certainly what you're saying with the, that actually modulates the, the sound wave to some extent, probably, but they can also perceive the, the sound in an, in, probably a way that's not comprehensible to humans but it's mm -hmm. really like, sort of like how elephants can you know they pick up their toes and they put their their toes on the ground to hear those ultra low frequencies something like that it, it was yeah. still kind of debated too it was like how effective are these I, I i was a while that i read it but it was kind of an interesting thing i can yeah i can definitely send that to you it was kind of and weird. with your your minoria out there at tc um are you hearing the vocalizations from your minoria or the TC. No, I mean, I, I've, I've been, I've come out here for the past like six years and I've, I've heard it before, but not, not in the past few weeks. No. Oh yeah. Mine are, mine are making up a ton of noise right now. It's, <laughs> that, there's really something, they really do make a lot of noise. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, I, I have heard it, but you can definitely hear that right when you walk in. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, no. I was, uh, I was in Colombia and we were doing some surveys for red-footed tortoises and we were on this um, big ranch down on the, the border with um, Venezuela and the, in the kind of like the Llanos, big wetland areas. And uh, we were walking through through these sand hills and the way we were able to find the tortoises is we could hear the males mating, you know? <laughs> and you would hear that, that I can't do it. It sounds sort of like a chicken. I, I don't even try to emulate it because it'll show up on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, but, yeah. but that was, that's, that's the first time I've ever been able to walk through an area and just, you know, been out and be able to find turtles by just listening for the, the mating sounds. Really fascinating stuff. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, I think we can sort of start to wrap things up. We've, had a really fun conversation, I think. And I, I think we've all learned yeah. a lot. It's been well, I hope I didn't drone on too much or stand too much on my soapbox. And like we should have started with these fun questions in the beginning. I could have got all fired <laughs> up. <laughs> oh man. Well, yeah, maybe we'll maybe we could start doing something. Yeah, yeah, but no, it's been uh yeah, it's been really interesting and, and I think yeah, it's a it's a cool actually 
enjoyable than just kind of all over the place. It's honestly, it's we we just come on and want to talk turtles, and I think that we yeah we, had, that we, we did that accomplished that goal. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Hey, well, thank you very much for inviting me. This has been a lot of fun, and uh, it's been a fun way to start a Sunday morning. Yeah, of course. Yep, same. Well, all right. So for, I guess, the viewers, you can find us at theturtleroom.org slash ColoniaCast. We also have access to the Student Research Fund on there. Uh, and we will see you on the next installment.